Habakkuk. I refer to Habakkuk because other people who are smarter than me refer to Habakkuk this way. So Habakkuk is referred to as the perplexed prophet. This is a book dealing with some confusion. Let's talk about the historical situation. There is no particular king mentioned of Judah at this point. I think it's Jehoiakim based on the date that I am proposing for Habakkuk. And there can be some disagreement about when the prophet speaks, because when prophets are speaking in generalizations about their specific situation and in specifics about events that are far off in the future, that doesn't really give you a hard and fast way to date things. Now, I think we do have a good cause to date most of these books, Habakkuk included. But if you go find a commentary on Habakkuk, or if you Google online, and even if you're going to good biblical sources for this information, they may have a different date for Habakkuk or for many of these minor prophets. So don't be surprised by that. Um, But I think it's Jehoiakim based on the events that are taking place and based on the description of the wickedness in the first few verses, which we'll get to in just a minute. The international scene. So thinking about our historical timeline and what Israel is living through and the world around them. I trust we've seen by this point that that has a great deal of influence on what's happening with the people. When the people of Israel feel secure because they're a powerful nation and the other powerful nations seem to be content with their own land and their own territory and and state of existence, then the people turn away from God because they can live in luxury, because they can live at ease. And then when there's another nation on the rise and empires are being threatened, threatened and overthrown and Israel has military threats surrounding them, suddenly the people turn back to God and say, oh God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Why is our life so hard? Why do bad things happen to such good people? And that has that sort of category of, of prophets as well. So what's happening for Habakkuk? Assyria, who is still the, the main power in one sense, is really declining. Egypt stopped their rise. They were getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and they've started declining. So if, if, if we know Israel's declining, the spoiler alert, Israel's declining, Assyria's declining, Egypt is declining. So who does that mean is getting stronger? What is the empire threat that's going to be dealt with in next in history. Babylon, the Babylonians. Babylon is getting stronger and stronger. So Babylon is the threat here. Babylon's getting stronger and stronger. And so you have these international struggles that are taking place. Egypt actually defeats Judah in 609 at the Battle of Megiddo. And remember some of the stuff we've read in Prophets and here and in there in worship, where we talk about how the Lord sent waves of judgment against the southern kingdom, where it looked like this was the moment where they were going to be overthrown, but then his hand stayed the judgment. And Egypt was one of those where it looked like Egypt would be the power that would finally and fully conquer Israel. And they defeated them in a significant battle, uh, and Josiah died, and it's bad, but then the Lord pulls them back because he uses the Babylonians, and then uh, that it's going to come in waves like that. So Josiah dies after Egypt defeats Judah. 
in 609. Jehoiahaz becomes king. I'm sure you remember from our list of kings that he was a bad king. Uh, So he's an evil king. And then Jehoiakim, who I said is the king when this is happening, he's actually made king by Egypt. Egypt is in control at this point. And they install Jehoiakim as king after the Battle of Megiddo in 609. And so all these political changes are what explain, can explain, the wickedness that we'll read about at the beginning of chapter 1. But then you're quickly going to move on from Egypt and get to Babylon, because Egypt isn't the real long-term threat here. Babylon is the real long-term threat. They're mentioned in verse 6. Nabopolassar is the founder of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. And in 626, Nebuchadnezzar uh, founds the empire. In 612, he defeats Assyria. And then now he's coming after Egypt. So even though Egypt is, I'm going to say taken over is too strong a word, but there's kind of these minor exiles and, and they are in captivity. But this is the Egyptian captivity, which will be pretty short-lived because uh, the Babylonians are going to conquer the Egyptians, and then therefore they're going to conquer Judah. And remember, the northern kingdom already is no more at this point. <laughs> How would you like to live in this type of political chaos? And that'll be 605. So you see how quickly the Babylonian empire takes off. 626, Nebuchadnezzar sort of begins the empire, formalizes it. 14 years later, 612, they conquer Assyria completely. And then seven years after that, they conquer Egypt completely. And so they've gone from being non-existent to the most powerful empire in the world in 21 years. That's what's happening here. So not only is Israel experiencing judgment, they're experiencing judgment at the hands of their own enemies. And that causes a great deal of confusion for them, which is what we're going to talk about throughout this book. So the message of Habakkuk, it begins the way uh, most of the prophets begin. Andrew, could you read verse 1? Yeah, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. The oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. So the Lord gives Habakkuk a vision, and he is to relate this vision to the people. This is actually a masa, an oracle of judgment. Um, And the form of Habakkuk is a dialogue. It's a back and forth between God and his prophet, or the prophet and God, depending on... Uh, who speaks first. And so this is a form of direct address where God is going to speak to his people through this vision, this interaction with the prophet that the prophet will then relay to the people. So that's what we're going to be doing in Habakkuk is going back and forth between the prophet's questions and God's answers and then the prophet's response, God's response, back and forth dialogue. All right? So first question. What's on the prophet's mind on behalf of the people, where he wants to start this, is how long and why. Basically, how can God allow this wickedness to continue? That they're under under Egyptian captivity and control. That they live in the hands of their enemies. How can God allow this to continue? 
go on. So we get first a description of the situation. Uh, Justin, could you read verses 2 through 4? Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So a law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so the people of God are crying out to God, and set aside the the hypocrisy crowd all right because we're aware the hypocrisy crowd exists they were doing iniquity doing the injustice and now they're complaining to god that that's being done to them okay that's don't yeah but there's always a faithful remnant in israel habakkuk is among them and he is a victim of this injustice this total neglect of the law the, the violence and the strife and the conflict that is now a part of daily life in Judah, this is something that is happening to good people, right? To the people who are trying to obey the covenant of God. And so Habakkuk asks, how long and why? Why are you okay with this? So let's pause there for a minute. Is that right? Is it right to question God? Depends. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> Does the Sunday school answer no? <laughs> Seems like it's a reasonable question. That's how long. My thought, yes, is that God has said, you know, uh, that you'll have doubts. Well, isn't it like the difference between Zechariah and Mary and mm. their prayers with, I mean, and they're talking with the angel, like it's a, a posture of the heart almost. Yeah. Is it like the, the manner in which your heart says that? Yeah. So it depends. <laughs> Jake, Jake, unpack the it's, it depends. Uh, I mean, I, I think they're uh, along the same lines. It really is about motivations, right? There's a way to ask how long that says, God, I know you're, that, that is faithful in that I know you're going to set it right, and yet it's very hard. I mean, we can see that uh, of the, the uh, elders in heaven. I mean, the martyrs in heaven are, do how, like, their blood cries out. So it can't be wrong, and I don't think Habakkuk's rebuked uh, even in this. However, there is a way to say, you know, how much longer do you, like, there's a way to do it that's not right. So it really, I think the right is the posture of the heart. So is it right to question God? And the answer is yes, if you do it rightly. Yes, it is right to question God. What does it mean to question God and what is appropriate questioning of God? It's in the context of trust. Questioning God must be done in the context of trust. God is not looking for us to only talk to him when we have understanding. What we feel like we need to bring to God 
is understanding. Here, God, let me explain to you the ways that this could make sense, the ways that you could use this evil for good. I've really put my mind to it, and because I've come up with a couple, now I think that I can approach you in prayer. The the problem is twofold with that. One is, if you do that, if you wait to approach God with these questions until you have understanding, you didn't approach God when you really needed Him. You separated yourself from God when you really needed Him. Because when you needed God most was not when you thought you had it all figured out. It was when your head was exploding with how this could possibly be. That's when you need God and the ability to... You need God at all times, but you know what I mean. That's when you emotionally, spiritually need the ability to approach God is when you are in this darkness of there is no good answer that I see. So don't wait for understanding. The other problem with waiting for understanding is your mind is not God's mind. And nobody puts God in a box or baby in a corner or something, whatever that expression is. If when you decide this is the good that God is going to make come out of this situation and that's what's helping you hold it together, what are you going to do when you're wrong? What are you going to do when you're wrong? Because there's a good chance you're wrong. Oh, this will finally be the event. It's horrible, but this will finally be the event that God uses to change my wayward sister. right? And what if not? Now we're back to, oh, well then in that case, God must be totally unjust and bad. <laughs> so don't, don't wait for understanding. God may give you understanding. He may not. But that's not actually what you need. And it is our temptation is to think that's what we need. I need God to make this clear to me, and then it will all be okay. That's not what you need. What you need is trust in God. You need to trust God. And so you go to God because you don't trust God by running away from God. You trust God by running to God and throwing this stuff on Him in expectant trust. You need the vision of His glory. You need the reminder of who He is and what He has said and His faithfulness and His goodness because none of this looks like any of that. And if I keep looking at this, I'm not going to see the glory and the faithfulness of God. I've got to look at God to see the glory and the faithfulness of God. And then I can in my periphery remember that all this stuff is indeed from a good and faithful God. But the more I study this stuff, I'm not going to suddenly come to the conclusion that, oh, this is way better than I thought it was. It is way better than you thought it would. But you've got to know the human heart and the human mind. The, the odds of you getting there are zero on your own strength and 50-50 on God's strength because he may not want to give you that vision. That may not be his design for this, is your understanding. So it is absolutely right to question God when you approach God in a context of trust. And Jake's right. You do see the martyrs do this. You see God himself ask how long in many contexts. It's a reasonable question. But what are you looking for when you take that question to God? What you should be looking for is for God to strengthen your trust, your vision of who he is. Justin, did you have a Go ahead. This reminds me of James 1, 5, and 6. Um, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If it's generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Yeah, God will give you the measure of all these things that you need. 
It's a, it's an analogy to Jake and I were talking about this recently with kind of that familiar expression, God never gives you more than he can than you can bear. That's not true. <laughs> because you can't bear nothing. <laughs> and so God will always give you the measure of wisdom, grace, patience that you need to bear every situation that he brings into your life when you ask for it in faith. When you trust God enough, I don't see how I get there from here. That's an okay thing to say. But that's a different thing than there is no getting there from here. Because that's a lack of trust. That even God can't get me from there to here. And whether it's coming out of the darkness of a difficult situation, whether it's a lot of times it's dealing with personal change. I am never going to be able to change this. Well, that is saying, God, I don't trust you to get me there from here because I can't see how that would happen. As opposed to, I can't get myself from there to here. I can't even see how I would get from there to here. But I trust God that if I ask him, he will do it. That's very different. And the, uh, the important thing to that is that we make sure that it is something he has promised. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you, you get me from here to there. Million dollars. Where's my million dollars? I want to get from here to one million (laughs) dollars. All right, so the prophet calls out to God, why and how long? And we've decided that is appropriate in a context of trust and prayer. So then God responds. Megan, can you read 5 through 11? Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing the work in your days that you would not believe it's told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Whoa, be careful what you ask for, right? (laughs) So God responds to Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, why are you doing this? How long? How can this be? And God says, I am at work among the nations. What you are lamenting is not something that is happening behind my back. What you are lamenting is the work that I am doing. And then I love, I love the, in fact, you think this plan is crazy? Were the Egyptians have you oppressed? And I'm using that for my purposes. If I told you what the next part of this plan was, you wouldn't even believe me. But I'm going to tell you anyway. You know, you know those Babylonians, those Chaldeans, those cruel and self-willed and quick, that unstoppable force. They know exactly who the Chaldeans are. They know what's going on with the Babylonians. And God says, you know them? And then he goes into great detail about how unstoppable they are. 
And the prophet in his mind probably thinks, oh yeah, yeah, but God's strong enough to stop them. This is where God says, I will stop them. And instead God says, nope, they're an instrument in my hands. I am using their wickedness for my purposes. I am going to raise up the Babylonians. Verse 6, beginning of verse 6, God tells you he's going to raise up the Babylonians to bring judgment on his own people. What's about to happen that could prompt from Habakkuk the same question. Why, Lord? How long, O Lord? What could this be? How can this be? God tells him preemptively, this is me. This is me at work through your enemies. I, he, and, it, and again, this is one of those tension things. The Babylonians are entirely responsible for their own evil. They're doing exactly what they want to do. God is not making the Babylonians do something they don't want to do. He's not responsible for their sin. They're responsible for their sin. But in God's providential organization of history, he takes their wickedness, their evil, their desire to do sin, and says, I'm going to use it for this. And they're fully accountable, and it becomes uh, his instrument of judgment in his hand against his own people and against the other nations. Remember, he's bringing judgment on the Egyptians as well for their wickedness when the Babylonians destroy them. God can use any of these. But that leads us to the next question, which is Habakkuk's response. Matt, or Renee, you've got it in front of you. Would you read chapter 1, verse 12, and go through the first verse of chapter 2? 112 to 2 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. For you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. A reasonable question. God, how can you use these wicked nations, this evil, to punish your people? How? how? (laughs) You've just told me what you're doing with the Babylonians, and it doesn't fit. And this goes back to our discussion a little while ago about can you ask these questions of God? This one, even more clearly than the first one, shows you exactly how to do it, how to get your heart right for this kind of question because in in verse 13 he gives his complaint which is sort of the question but what came first what was verse 12 my complaint is rooted in the character of God my complaint is not at this point I don't like my circumstances I wish you would change them my complaint is here is your character and here is what's happening amongst your people and there seems to be a disconnect 
There's an incongruity between who I know you are and what you seem to be doing in the world. What I'm experiencing doesn't match what I know you to be and what I would expect based on your character. That's absolutely the condition of heart to come to God and say, why? How long? What are you doing? (laughs) Because it's not, this must be evil. It's, I don't see the connection between your goodness, what I expect from a God who is the way you are, and what I'm seeing in this world. That's the question he raises to God here. Uh, And so he is going to get further revelation. God does not often do this. He often, this sort of second follow-up question, is where God goes into gentle rebuke mode of you're trying now to understand something that is too far beyond you. You're doing good on the trust point. That's good. But your trust in practice looks a lot like accusing me of evil and wrongdoing. And you need to stop and back up to the trust. That's a very common thing for God to do. Occasionally, he'll give you glimpses. The very end of Jonah, when he says, should I not love these hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh the way that you love your best friend, the plant? (laughs) Occasionally, God will give you glimpses. And here in Habakkuk, he does. He answers the question that he would not be wrong to simply mildly rebuke. Again, it's not like Habakkuk's doing something wrong here. Habakkuk is grounding this in the nature of God, but there's always a chance when you go down this path that the condition of your heart is that it won't be satisfied until it has a satisfying reason. And if what you're looking for is a satisfying reason, the best thing God can do is rebuke you. What you need to find is a satisfying God. And then whether or not you get the reason, you'll still be satisfied in God. But God does answer here. Matt, would you read verses 2 through 5, chapter 2? And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. All right, two parts to this. And we're going to read the next verses in just a minute because 2 through 19 all go together. But I wanted to stop there and make two points. The first is to love that God says, Habakkuk, write it down. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Write this down. Other people are going to have this question. Tells them to go read it. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go read this when we have that question. How can God allow this to be? The prophet goes, hey, the people want to know how you could allow this to be. Yeah, yeah, write it down. Okay? I will make it known. Part of it is, it all does make sense. This is the part that you won't get to see. It may be a long time coming. It may seem really slow. But in terms of getting the answer to your question, the satisfying answer about this 
particular situation of evil that troubles you, there is a satisfying answer. It may be a long time coming. It may not be one that you see in this life. But wait for it. Wait for it in confident hope and trust and expectation because the God who says it has an answer is true. And he's doing what's true. Then he goes into this specific situation and gives Habakkuk, like I said, a little more answer than you'll normally get from God about an individual moment of this question. And it's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The proud cannot be upright. That's verse 4. You cannot go to God, boast in your righteousness, and be accurate. (laughs) Because by the very nature of your boasting, you reveal unrighteousness. It's it's a paradox. It can't work that way. So what then... Will the righteous live by, if not, they're boasting in their own righteousness? It's the end of verse 4. Faith. They'll live by faith. So even in this specific situation, it's coming back to the more general principle of the, the answer actually is the answer. The answer of this situation is the answer of all situations, which is that man putting himself above God rather than approaching God in humility and faith is the cause of this judgment and is the cause of your intellectual and spiritual turmoil when you see what God is doing and you don't understand it or don't like it. The answer is to live by faith. The wicked, verse 5, will continue in their boastful ways. Whether or not God gives them an answer. Whether or not God gives them what they want. Whether or not they think that what's happening in the world is good or bad. You know what the wicked are going to do? Keep on wickeding. Because the wicked be wicked. That's what they do. Pagan's going to pagan, right? Oh, so that's just the way it's going to... Then we just have to live this way, where we have to live by faith, whether good or bad things come. Yes, 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 yes. You could full stop. God would be totally within his rights to end the book there. <laughs> oh, the wicked get to live however they want to live, and they get to live with the crap they make, and then we still have to live with the crap they make, even when they're righteous, because we just have to live by faith. Yes, end of book. Could be. But he doesn't. God gives his people a little bit more. So he gives the fate of the proud, and he does it through five statements. Daphne. If you look at verse 6, it's two sentences. Start at the back half of verse 6 and read 6, 7, and 8. Woe to him who keeps up what is not his own. For how long? He loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What's the fate of the proud? First mocking statement. The plunderer will be plundered. Or the pillager will be pillaged. However you want to put it. Will the wicked just get to keep on going being wicked forever? No. The plunderer will be plundered. Alright, Karen, 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. 
safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. And the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. What will happen to the fortified? They'll be be dismantled, cut off. This is God mocking. These are these are mocks. The fate of the proud, where Habakkuk and God's people are so worried. Boy, we can't relate to this at all. I mean, Habakkuk just clearly lacked faith. You're so worried that if we actually live by faith, if we focus our attention only on the glory of God and doing what's right, that none of these bad people are ever going to get what they deserve. That our enemies will never be dealt with, that wickedness will never be punished, that if we don't take that into our own hands, if we don't uh, focus our time and energy and attention on meeting out justice in this world, then the wicked will never see justice. They're just going to get away with it because we're too busy living by faith and that's how you become a doormat is you just live by faith and you don't look out for yourself. You don't build fortifications. You don't take what you can get. Take what's rightfully yours. And so you're just going to live a whole life taken advantage of. That Habakkuk really is a maniac. I mean, he has, who would think that way? And then God goes systematically through and says, yep, the people who take what they can get, the people who plunder, I deserve this. God sees They'll be plundered. It will be taken from them. The people who build up fortifications, I'm my own defense. I can protect myself. I look out for me. That is the most common statement I hear from counselors now. Even even supposedly Christian counselors telling people they have to look out for themselves. You have to take care of yourself. That is insane. No. You have to lay down your life for others. Your spouse that will never change? Your so-and-so that's the problem? Your... You have to lay down your life. (laughs) That is the only way you will ever find it. Because if you do this nonsense, plundering to protect yourself and building up fortifications, you might do okay for a while. You might even do okay for this whole life. But when this guy comes in judgment, when Yahweh comes (laughs) to make things right, you're on the wrong side of this transaction. You don't want to be there. What's the third one? Uh, Crystal, 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing. The earth will be filled So this one is not the way we would say it. So I'll help you with the language a little bit in terms of what Habakkuk is talking about. He's talking about the civilized. The civilized will be demoralized. People who don't have faith and trust in God because they're too civilized for that. They have the knowledge of man. They have, they have sophisticated cities and commerce and centers of learning. They will be demoralized. They've built up their entire value, trust in the future, trust that things will turn out okay in the end, not based on trust in God, but on their own civilization. <laughs> and that's not going to work out so well. They're, they're building towers up to heaven. They're building... It, it's not trying to fo- focus on the, the military or the tangible stuff. 
that civilizations build to protect themselves. That's in the fortifications one. It's focusing more on the mentality, the ethos of the thing, that mankind uh, is on some upward trajectory by our own force and intellect and, and sheer will, and that that is why we're going to be okay in the end. Then the, it swings to the other, I don't want to say extreme, but it swings in another direction. Nick, 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come to you, come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The shameless will be disgraced. So this is the the other way of living, besides this upward trajectory triumph of mankind, is the eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. None of this matters. Do whatever you want to do. Indulge in everything you want to indulge in. And invite your friends <laughs> offer them a drink the, the shameless who cannot imagine shame as a concept that should matter will be disgraced that is the judgment that will be poured out on them Jake will you read 18 and 19 what profit is an idol when, it, when its maker has shaped it a metal image a teacher of lies for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. The idolatrous are powerless, ultimately. If you want to put your hope and trust, your confidence for the future, your confidence in things working out in a just way in the end, in the hands of an idol you will find the idol to be utterly powerless in the moment of truth. It's so fascinating to have read this book for me, where yesterday, you know, I'm listening to my Supreme Court cases, because <laughs> uh, there are a bunch of new ones this week. And one of them is about, they have a law in Maine that basically says, we provide public schools for kids in Maine, just like everywhere else, but there are some areas of Maine that are so rural it is not economically viable to provide a public school for children that live there. So the state of Maine gives them money to go to a private school instead. And they will not give you that money if you want to go to a religious private school. And so the question was, that seems to be a problem. What they're trying to prevent is state endorsement of a of particular religion, which is what the Constitution says that we're free from, state endorsement of a particular religion, and the way that the modern world loves to interpret that is state rejection of all semblances of religion, which is not at all what the Constitution says. But to hear the questioning, you could hear from these justices and from the attorneys arguing the case what their worldview is based on. What they think will bring about justice in the end. And some of them have this, this idea that it's this upward trajectory of mankind. That of course this is, mankind is good. We are ultimately perfectible. We just need more time and education and better government. And then we'll get there. And to his credit, I think it was Justice Alito who said, 
that is a religion. It's called Unitarian Universalism. So why are we prioritizing that religion over other ones? Which is a really great response. But you could hear them in their questions, their presuppositions about how there will be justice in the end, how things will be right, whatever right means on the whole. And it's this list. (laughs) It's either people's freedom to be as free from shame as they want that's a big one. Several people in this case are driven by that. The, the freedom people should have to live with whatever choice they want and free from the shame and judgment of others. Because that's really what's wrong with this world. It's judgment. The judgy judgments is the problem. It's not the murdering millions of babies. Pay no attention to that. Other people, it's, it's idols, other, which is Unitarian Universalism. This, this religion that says there is some binding spirit out there that's not a god that gives us all this vision of what it means to do right by one another, and that will win in the end. Um, it's absolute madness. And here, Habakkuk, the Lord reveals to him, he just goes straight down the list. <laughs> people who look after themselves, yeah, they're going to be pillaged. People who build massive fortifications to protect themselves, yeah, they're going to be, those are going to be dismantled. People who trust in the upward trajectory of man, yeah, that's going to be, de- uh, they're going to be demoralized in the end. The shameless, live what I want, free from shame, they're going to be disgraced. Idolatrous, these false gods will look after us and protect us. No, they are utterly powerless. And so God just goes down this entire list of things that the wicked unbelievers build their future and their worldview on. And he says, nope, 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 nope. Won't work. And so what happens to Habakkuk in response? Pam, will you read verse 20? Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in the holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We're back a a little bit to our Job moment. (laughs) To our... (laughs) Right? To... When God does give an answer, all we can do with his answer is stand in silent awe and wonder. Oh, God does have all of this figured out. He is in complete control. He will do what he said he will do. He is good. This is all going to happen. In fact, it is happening around me now. I just choose to focus on how hard this is for me and how much I wish it were different. And what God says is you need to focus on my glory and trust in me. And if you do that, occasionally you'll get some glimpses that all of this stuff is completely working out my purposes. I am not surprised by any of this. And so a proper response is silence before the Lord in the face of things that we cannot understand. Now, notice that doesn't mean, where did we start this class? Is it right to go to God with those questions? Absolutely. It's not silence at that point. (laughs) But when we see the glory of God and we hear his answer to our complaint of how long, O Lord, when we're hearing that answer by faith, let all the earth keep silence before him. There's not another round of questioning that comes after that. Yeah, but God, okay, but what if you did it this his glory is too great. He's thought it all through. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be. So then Habakkuk chapter 3 gives a really thoughtful response. Lauren, will you read 1 through 13?
O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, you are here. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Karen. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations, and the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His, ever, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and reaped. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him there from thigh to neck. God gave Habakkuk what he said he would give him. He gave him a vision of the glory of the Lord coming in wrath. What he's going to do to make all of this right. That is the promise. God promises this is what he will do. We have even more clear promises than Habakkuk had. This was enough for God's people. We have this, everything they had, plus everything that came since culminating in Christ. We have the death and resurrection of Christ as the promise, the Holy Spirit given to us as a gift after the exaltation of Christ. All of these are a promise of what God will do. So how do we respond to God's clear promises? This is how the book ends. Two things. Uh, Justin, will you read 14 through 16? You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Patience. I will wait. I see trouble up ahead. You promised trouble. There is suffering before there is glory. How do we receive the promise of God of suffering and then glory? We patiently wait for the suffering. Patiently wait. And then secondly, Megan, will you read 17 through 19? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. 
He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with string instruments. A victorious faith. Patiently waiting for suffering with a victorious, hopeful faith for the joy that lies beyond it. The, the presence of one, which was promised and told to us, reveals the certainty of the one that comes behind it. The, the certainty of being pushed down into the earth, of dying, which is the fulfillment of promise, buried with Christ, is the certainty of the other part of that promise, which is raised with Christ. And so we wait patiently, even for the day of calamity, even as we endure the day of calamity. And we live by a victorious faith, which tells us that the other part of this is true and is coming. And how long, O Lord, doesn't mean it's never going to happen. It means this is hard. And this is hard. 